Welcome to a podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. Our academy is a national organization committed to excellence in orthopedic manual physical therapy practice, education, and research. And we're here to explore a wide range of topics with you through interviews with content experts. Hello, my name is Stephen Schaefer, and I'm excited to bring to you another interview from the 2019 AOMPT conference. Our guest today is Dr. Kenneth Taylor. Dr. Taylor is an assistant professor in the Doctor of Physical Therapy program at Gannon University in Ruskin, Florida. He received his DPT from the University of Indianapolis and is a board-certified clinical specialist in orthopedic physical therapy. He graduated from the James A. Haley Veterans Hospital Orthopedic Residency Program has a graduate certificate in applied biostatistics, and is currently a PhD candidate in public health at the University of South Florida. Dr. Taylor's research interests are related to how sleep and musculoskeletal pain and function interact at the population level. Dr. Taylor, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Doing well. Good to be here. It's good to be here, and it's good to be at conference. This is always a fun time of year. Sure is. Yeah. I, I've been to the AOM conference several times. This is probably my fourth or fifth one, and, and I always think it's great content. Uh, I love this conference for just orthopedic manual stuff. Can't get any better than this conference. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, and that's precisely why I come as well. Uh, but more to the point, we have you on the show today because you're going to present a breakout session titled Knackered, Gnawing, and Lackadaisical. Redefining Musculoskeletal Health by Assessing and Addressing Sleep Complaints in Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapy Practice. As a starting point, can you describe for us what restorative sleep is and why it is so important to the human body? Yeah, so restorative sleep usually is defined as uh, an individual's ability to be able to go through all of the five different stages of sleep. But beyond that, uh, it would also... If we're thinking about more than just restorative sleep, we would also be thinking about uh, both quality and quantity. So for adults, we need seven to nine hours of sleep a night. For adolescents, they need eight to 10 hours of sleep a night. And for children, they need nine to 11 hours of sleep per night. So we should be thinking about both quality and quantity we need a certain amount of minimum amount of quantity for sleep during that time individuals should be going through each of those stages of sleep now over the lifespan we expect how much of one stage or the other stage an individual would get should change over that period of time so as that necessary or that window that we need of sleep changes over the lifespan as we get older, so does what we would expect to see from each of those stages of sleep. Additionally, uh, we should be thinking of things like chronotype, which also change over time, and that's just the the expression of an individual's uh, genetic preference for when they sleep. So you can have people who are on the extreme and really more of a morning type person, and those sometimes are called more morning larks. And then we have people on the extreme other side who stay up really, really late and go to bed late, wake up late, and those people are more eveningness type, and sometimes we call them night owls. So over over the lifespan, we expect that to change as well. 
So younger people typically stay up really, really late. And then somewhere in the uh, late 20s to the 40s, we see a sharp drop in, uh, in the number of people who are more night owls. And we see a shift where adults become more morning larks. So after, after sleep, in addition to going through those five different stages, individuals should also feel rested and have a subjective good quality to their sleep. On that final point, one of the things that makes me think of are the individuals, of course, that have sleep apnea, right? Mm -hmm. So they might be getting more than the number. They have the quantity of hours of sleep, but the sleep quality is low enough that, you know, they wake up in the morning and they're tired and let's say, you know, they randomly fall asleep repetitively throughout the day because the body's telling them you need more, quote unquote, restorative sleep. Yeah, absolutely. And so with individuals who have sleep apnea, uh, we see severe fragmentation depending on however many times they stop breathing during the night and how much oxygen deficiency they have during the night. That will correlate very well with the severity of their symptoms and how much fragmentation they have during their sleep period. And so that directly relates to how sleepy they are during the daytime. And on a related note, another example that I use in the clinic a lot is the example of alcohol. And I don't know if you've come across this in your research and teaching, but everyone pretty much knows that ethanol is a depressant. You know, you drink enough of it and you pass out of your sleep, et cetera. But no one ever feels rested in the morning. And, you know, I learned through a, a former colleague of mine, Garrett Nays at High Point, that uh, there's a bunch of research that shows that when your body metabolizes ethanol, it actually becomes a central nervous system stimulant. So you're, you're never able to deeply go into that restorative sleep, even if you just you know, passed out and slept for eight hours or 10 hours. Yeah. Self-medication for attempting to fall asleep is, is more common than we would like. But unfortunately, for reasons like that, it's not recommended, right? Outside of just it being a bad coping mechanism, we're not actually helping or individuals aren't helping themselves get the restorative sleep that they need. We see the same thing with opioids, where individuals may take opioid medication to help them sleep, but it's really more that it kind of forces them to be unconscious rather than helping them kickstart that sleep process. So they don't actually start to move into all of those different stages of sleep. They just happen to be unconscious. That's an excellent segue into the next question. And for some folks, this might be a... You know, a very elementary question because it kind of seems obvious. We need to sleep. Sleep is important. Folks probably even, for example, have heard of things like sleep deprivation as an interrogation technique. You know, bad things happen to the body when it doesn't sleep. But outline for us, please, how sleep and restorative sleep and sleep dysfunction are specifically related to expert musculoskeletal health care. So I hesitate to say this because of how when people started saying this about pain that kind of kick-started the opioid epidemic that we're in right now but i think that sleep is one of the closest things to a fifth vital sign that we have right because of its effects not only on the musculoskeletal system but on other systems that are related to the musculoskeletal system as well so when we're talking about musculoskeletal health there's a really really good review from the journal of pain that was published in 2013 by Patrick Finnan and his colleagues talking about the association between sleep and pain. 
And so they, they do a nice deep dive review into discussing what do we know from the current literature at that time about how sleep and pain are related. And it'll come as no surprise to the people listening to this podcast that people who hurt more sleep less. But what we also find is that people who sleep less actually start to hurt more and they become more likely to hurt. So there's a bi-directional relationship. It's reciprocal, but there's a stronger relationship between sleep issues precipitating pain. So there's a little bit more of a stronger temporal relationship there. In addition to that, individuals who come to us with acute pain, if they're sleeping poorly, their risk of transitioning from an acute issue to a chronic issue is much higher. If we talk about people who already have a chronic issue, then if we can get their sleep better, that same review talks about how improving the sleep quantity and quality of individuals with chronic pain significantly improves the chance that they're going to have a remission of their chronic pain. So if we're thinking of clinical outcomes, it sounds like sleep will both help us prevent long-term poor outcomes. And if people have been having really, really long-term issues to begin with, then we should focus at least some of our time on changing sleep so that way we can improve our outcomes with those specific individuals who have not had a good go at it so far. We also know that sleep has a, a strong effect on uh, performance. So when we're thinking about athletic performance, first of all, athletes are not good at uh, regulating or, or understanding how much sleep they're getting. So this group, you know, we need to use some more of those valid and reliable tools with. But we know that as athletes, for example, collegiate athletes start to get less sleep than what's recommended, then their risk of injury starts to climb. Right? And, uh, you see a lot of D1 collegiate athlete programs now including sleep as part of the training program. Right? So it has a big, it's a big contributor to injury risk. And it also is something that's important for recovery. There's also uh, evidence about how fragmented sleep and short duration sleep also have a significant effect on insulin resistance throughout the body. So including skeletal muscle insulin resistance. All of that has a direct effect on an individual's risk for developing diabetes. And we all know that individuals with diabetes have bigger issues with wound healing. So after surgery, they're going to have impaired healing. Even if they're not diabetic, we also know that limited sleep has a similar effect to wound healing as nicotine does. So we all counsel our patients on, or we've all been taught in school to counsel our patients on, smoking cessation after a surgery, but how many of us are actually counseling our patients on getting good sleep after a surgery to maximize wound healing? The other thing is a lot of orthopedic manual physical therapists utilize graded exposure as part of their treatment to deal with issues related to fear avoidance. We know that sleep is strongly related to cognition and memory and especially emotional memory. So if our patients can get better sleep, then we can maximize the benefit of things like graded exposure, which if you look at the 2016 uh, kind of update review of 
of graded exposure from the Journal of Pain, the, the authors specifically say that the effects of fear extinction, they're weakly generalizable. Uh, so the, overall, it's fragile and it doesn't generalize to other movements, maybe other than out what we've been working on specifically with our patient. So if we can get them to sleep, there's evidence that that strengthens the generalizability of things like graded exposure. That's a great answer. It's right in alignment with what I know to be true in the clinic and what I've read in the literature. You know, sleep, of course, and this is part of why I introduced it as, you know, some of this might be a, a simple and obvious question. You know, sleep is really darn important. Yeah. You know, people need to sleep. They need to sleep well. And to bring in a clinical example, I was working on this patient uh, last year, and she had a really bad situation in terms of the chronicity of her pain. She had horrible headaches. She wasn't sleeping well for that and other reasons, neck pain, jaw pain. And despite, I don't remember the exact numbers, but despite having something like 20 years of pain, I got her pretty far. You know, she was 60% better. She could move better. She could tolerate life better. But she, she probably slept no more than an hour at a time. Uh, she was an extremely heavy smoker, and she had a high level of stress in her life. Hmm. And I, you know, I spent weeks and weeks and weeks to, to get her into a better sleep habit, to at least cut back on smoking, you know, to, to start exercising. And let's just say we had that conversation 10 times and it didn't go anywhere. And as a result, she got stuck. I think that's the reason she got stuck. It's 60% better. And when I discharged her eventually, her one question to me, her one and only question was, you know, how do I make this go away? Mm. Yeah, it's like, oh, you know, we've been talking about this for weeks. You know, like you need to sleep. Yeah. You don't sleep and bad things happen, you know. Now, of course, clinically speaking, I could have implemented that plan she could have started sleeping and stopped smoking and maybe the pain wouldn't have gone away anyway. But it obviously, according to the research anyway, would have made it more likely to be. Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the things you mentioned in your prior example is that, you know, utilizing tools to screen for sleep function and dysfunction is helpful. Can you outline briefly what some of those tools might be? Maybe what's your favorite one? What has the most research done on it? You know, something like that. One of the tools that I think is really great and is uh, commonly used in the clinic, but I think it's great because it's also valid and reliable in non-clinical populations. So I think there's some uh, utility there for moving into more primary prevention of long-term issues related to sleep is the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index. So that is, you should be able to just Google it and be able to find a ton of information on it. You should be able to even find the tool itself. It takes about five or 10 minutes for the patient to fill it out, but it gives uh, several different subscales related to sleep. And it also gives a total score. So then we've now got a good picture of the different dimensions of that individual's sleep, but we can also use those scales potentially as measures for patient goals if we wanted to make sleep a related patient goal. So... The Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index will give us in information about things like sleep latency. So how long does it take for the individual to fall asleep? Uh, subjective sleep quality. So again, kind of going back to was do they subjectively feel that they're getting restorative sleep or not? Uh, excessive daytime sleepiness. So what are their symptoms throughout the day? How they may feel restored in the morning when they wake up, but does that maintain as it should throughout the day? It will also gather information from the patient in order to 
allow us to calculate what's called sleep efficiency. So sleep efficiency is the number of hours the individual is in bed in the denominator and then the number of hours of actual sleep that individual gets on average in the numerator. So it's just a division of those two numbers, so a proportion of that. What's the proportion of time that they're in bed that they're actually sleeping? So from that, we can focus in on doing some of our our interventions that we could do in the clinic with the individual to try to improve things like sleep efficiency. And ideally, if we improve sleep efficiency over time, those other factors should also improve. And is this the type of tool that you're implementing on every patient when they come through the clinic, or is this something you just utilize when you get the idea or they report something about having a sleep problem? Right. So this would be something more I would use after I've done kind of a subjective history with the patient. So I'm not giving this tool to everyone in the clinic because I think there are, there's already enough paperwork that patients have to go through, right? Individuals get paperwork fatigue. And so adding something that'll take an additional five to 10 minutes onto that and may not be beneficial for them is, is not recommended, I would say. But uh, I'm going to ask my patients about their sleep subjectively. And if it sounds like there's some issues there, then I want more objective, self-rated data. So it's not something I give to everyone, but if I start to see indicators of a sleep issue, then I'm definitely going to give it to them so I can track that. Outside of the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, there's also the Epworth uh, Sleepiness Scale, and that is a much uh, quicker tool. However, that only gives an idea of how sleepy is that individual out throughout the day. That's really, really good for screening for things like narcolepsy, obstructive sleep apnea, things that would necessitate a referral to a different provider and that we definitely don't want to miss because it has a significant impact on other healthcare outcomes like cardiovascular events uh, and obviously, like you mentioned before, obstructive sleep apnea can have a major impact on sleep and we've already talked about how that impacts musculoskeletal health. That sounds very similar to the approach that we use in the clinic that I'm in. Uh, we just have one question on the intake paperwork. You know, mm-hmm. Please describe your your uh, sleep habits, you know, and if they write down good or great or excellent or whatever, then I'm not worried about it. Mm-hmm. At least I'm not initially worried about it. Sometimes you find something later. Right. Uh, but if they write something negative or, you know, give me an indication that I need to dive deeper, then I dive a lot deeper. Mm-hmm. It's just a quick, efficient, effective way to, you know, like you said, limit the paperwork. Yeah. So your patient comes in and you go through the subjective process. Let's say you do identify that there is a a sleep dysfunction component, or at least you suspect there is. Mm -hmm. And obviously we don't have time to to talk about all the strategies and all the details, but can you give our listeners a snapshot of a few things that you do, maybe tactics or, you know, for lack of maybe a better phrase, a home exercise program to have them begin to work on restoring their normal sleep habits? Yeah. So before I even get to what are what do I want the patient to do at home, I have to really get that patient to buy in. Most patients aren't thinking of their sleep whenever they come in to see a PT. So I need to make sure as a clinician, I can navigate reasoning for that patient. Why is this important? Mrs. Jones, you came to me and you said like, you know, this is your goal. You want to be able to get rid of this pain, get back to doing everything you were doing a year ago. So here are the things that I found in my exam. One of those things includes sleep. So I'll go through that whole list and sleep 
won't be my first one. I'll go through all the typical stuff they expect first, and then I'll mention. I also, you know, notice that your sleep is is really not optimal right now. And one thing we know is if we want to get you back to this goal of yours of getting back to full function, getting rid of this pain, if we can improve the quality and the quantity of your sleep, we have a significantly higher chance of doing that. So we could do some things with your sleep. Is that something you'd be interested in? Usually when I frame it that way, I've never had a patient say, no, I don't think so. I want a lesser chance of getting better. Right? I, I need to directly tie it to what their their goal and what their purpose for being there is. Otherwise, they start to think this person's just doing things that are nice to do, but really are going to have no effect on what I, I'm wanting to get out of this. Once they have buy-in, or once I have patient buy-in, then I'll initiate parts of uh, what's considered cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which has good evidence to improve quality and quantity of sleep. So giving them education on sleep hygiene. So limiting alcohol, water intake before bed, not allowing pets in the bed, uh, trying to make sure to keep television, screen time to a minimum before bed, definitely uh, don't want you doing that stuff in your bedroom. Then there's stimulus control, which some individuals kind of conceptualize as part of sleep hygiene. The only thing that really matters for stimulus control is limiting what's going on in the bedroom. Nothing should be going on in there except for sleep and sex for our patients. So anything else, you want to read a book before bed to wind down, great go to the living room and do it. You want to watch TV before bed because you're ignoring the screen time recommendation I give you? That's fine. Don't do it in the bedroom. Anytime the the patient comes to the bedroom, we want their body to go, oh, I know what happens here. It's time to really wind down. This is the sleepy spot. So nothing outside of sleep and sex in the bedroom. We would also want to give them some general education about not catastrophizing about their sleep because that can become a really big issue. So uh, making sure they understand and have realistic expectations for if we improve your sleep, that's not going to improve all of your issues. It's not, you know, you may still have some things that are sticking around uh, that don't get taken care of. But like you said before, it makes it significantly more likely that these issues will resolve. So helping them understand that this is kind of a long-term game for them. And then the biggest part, the most effective part of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is sleep restriction. So restricting how much time that individual is allowed to be in bed. So if the, if the patient says, I'm in bed eight hours, but I'm only sleeping five of those hours, well, that's a really, really bad sleep efficiency if we calculate that. Ideally, sleep efficiency is somewhere between 80 and 85%. So if it's less than that, I'm going to shorten the window of time they're allowed to be in bed, right? or I'm going to work with them to do that. And the patient can is involved in this process. Where do we want to move that new shortened window? Do they want to go to bed later, or do they want to wake up earlier? Right. So the patient knows what else is going on in their life really well and what's a possibility for them. Morningness or eveningness of chronotype also kind of plays into their preference with that. So... Over time, as their sleep efficiency improves, then we can start adding small chunks of time onto either side of that window and track as we add time, does their sleep efficiency also increase? And gradually we can get them to sleeping a normal duration of time 
with good sleep efficiency and the sleep pressure from not sleeping early on and that will help for things like issues with sleep latency where the person can't fall asleep quickly. So if we shorten the window of time where they're allowed to possibly sleep, they're more likely to fall asleep quicker later in the evening. And then finally, exercise is a big piece, right? So exercise we know will help drive people to be more exhausted to sleep better. So exercise is the most readily available, the easiest buy-in intervention we can get with our patients. So that is part of all of this. It's not that we're doing our, our regular interventions and then this thing is kind of on the fringe. This should be incorporated into everything else we're already doing. It's one of the reasons why I love the topic so much. It's, you know, it's, it's already right there. You mm-hmm. know, like it, it is part of, you know, the musculoskeletal process. Everyone knows you exercise and you get tired. Everybody knows that you go and see a physical therapist and you exercise, you know. Mm-hmm. Not that we have to do exercise with every patient, but it, it is just, it's one step away from everything we're already doing. Absolutely. You know, so it's a, it's a great place to mix it all in. Now, a burning question I have for you, and I imagine a lot of the audience members would have this. Let's say that you implement these recommendations, et cetera. You know, you try to improve sleep hygiene. What's a realistic time frame to see improvement in someone's sleep behavior? And maybe let's also characterize that in what's a really fast example and what's a really kind of slow example. It's a really interesting question. I'm going to go with the typical educator question of it, de- or it, the typical educator answer of it depends on what's the what's the overarching goal what are the issues how many sleep issues are there for the patient so if they have some minor things that are going on and i'm just worried more about preventing issues or or minimizing the likelihood of them transitioning from an acute issue to a chronic issue it may just be a few quick tweaks of things right and so at that point they don't have any problem and now i've ideally minimized the risk of a problem starting in the future. So then I don't have to do more intervention to now deal with that issue that's around. So in cases where individuals aren't dealing with necessarily chronic pain or uh, only have a couple minor things, it's very easy. Educate the patient why it's important, make sure they get buy-in and understand, and then they can make those changes. And they may not notice a difference because there was never a problem there. We're trying to prevent issues in the future. If someone's got issues, say they're coming to you with chronic pain and they've got a lot of sleep-related issues, that's a long game, right? Just like everything else when we're talking about treating individuals with chronic pain. Uh, It takes a long period of time to work on that stuff. When we're talking about things like sleep restriction, which I mentioned, we're talking about looking at their average sleep efficiency over a week. And then if it's in that good range, adding 15 minutes onto that window, 15 minutes, right? So if I shorten their window to something like five hours or six hours, it may take several weeks of good sleep efficiency before they make it to that recommended period of time. But that's the way to do it. It's a long game. Some weeks their average sleep efficiency may be worse. And maybe I had been lengthening the window, say we're up to six Six hours, 15 minutes, and their sleep at, their average sleep efficiency was worse, then we may drop it back 15 minutes, right? So it's not that it's always adding to that window. Sometimes it's subtracting. Now, five, we don't want to go anything under five hours. That would be really, really bad. And the, 
and it increases the risk of adverse events. Uh, if someone has epilepsy, schizophrenia, if they're, they're bipolar, they should really be uh, doing these things with a, a psychologist rather than a PT because of their risk of adverse event. That's exactly the type of answer I would expect. And I mean, it's consistent again with my clinical practice. Uh, I already gave an example of how, you know, I tried the long game and it didn't work with a certain patient. I've had other scenarios where, you know, they're, like you said, they're doing very well. They don't have that much of a problem. I tweak one little thing. And usually for, for my clinical practice, a, a quick case is within days or a week. Yeah. Um, you know, as a, as a recent example, I was talking with a gentleman. He didn't have any particular problem. It just came up that he wasn't sleeping well. When I say he didn't have a particular problem, he didn't have a musculoskeletal complaint. Mm-hmm. He wasn't in pain. But he was a little bit psychologically tortured by the fact that for multiple years he had not slept well. Mm. Uh, and he found out through conversation with some people that were there that I, I addressed sleep dysfunction. And I, I essentially just sat there and interrogated the man. This, this wasn't even in a, in a clinical setting. And, you know, he, he made a comment like, hey, you, you must know what you're talking about because you're asking all the same questions the sleep experts asked me when I did my sleep study. And the only thing I could identify was that he appeared to have a, a decent relationship with caffeine, but a very sensitive relationship mm-hmm. to caffeine. And... I ended up saying, well, here's a here's a one thing that you can modify that I think might help you. And he's like, oh, that's exactly what the sleep specialist said. And so then my follow-up, of course, is, you know, here's your hypothesis and here's your treatment, but what's the outcome? And when we talked about it a little further, he's like, well, you know, to be honest, I didn't really fully test it. You know, I did it for a couple days and then I cheated a little bit and then I did it for a couple days and I cheated a little bit. You know, I didn't think it was that big of a deal. So all we had to do was just set a time period. Give me one week with absolutely zero caffeine intake and tell me what happens and then we'll, we'll pick up from there. And by the end of the week, the man was sleeping like a champ through the entire night. You know, three years of sleep dysfunction gone after, after one conversation. Yeah, it's great. It's really, really great. And it, and it kind of, so his perspective on his sleep too kind of circles back to what we mentioned before about how we should be trying to reduce that anxiety about poor sleep right because that only then feeds into that loop of bad sleep it's like people that lay down in bed and say i'm going to force myself to go to sleep that doesn't work right so uh, creating more anxiety and fear is not the what we want to do in the clinic right and if that's already there like it was in that guy then we would want to definitely address that but like you say some sometimes we can just tweak a few things and it's a you know days to weeks other times if there's a lot of stuff going on as we would expect. It's a long game. And at a certain point, we may have to educate our patients if we're worried about like losing uh, them not being able to afford care or uh, we're worried about their insurance not paying for these kind of long-term interventions. We, at a certain point, need to educate our patient about here are the tools you need to continue with this plan so that way you can continue to see benefit. So the evidence surrounding things like sleep restriction and the other components of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia uh, are really, really promising. They're, they're as good as, if not better, than pharmacological interventions for sleep. Uh, and these are things that PTs can do. Just because uh, it originated with psychologists and it has a term like cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, a lot of this is just behavioral interventions changing the way someone goes throughout the day, we already do that for our patients with 
everything else. And I would argue sleep is an activity of daily living, an important activity of daily living. So why, why would we shy away from this? That's an excellent point. And you brought up the term resources. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to take that word and run with it just a little bit, not from the patient perspective, but the provider perspective. You know, what, what are those resources that you would say to our listeners, read this book, visit this website, you know, read this research study. And of course, there are lots of resources out there. It doesn't need to be exhaustive, but, right. you know, pick a couple and let some people know where they can go and read up on this topic. Yeah. So one easy, everyone can access it resource would be Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So CDC.gov, they have a lot of good information about uh, short sleep and what does that look like geospatially across the country. Uh, you know, one in three adults aren't getting enough sleep, but that's kind of in pockets, right? So it's more than one in three in certain parts of the country, and it's less than one in three in other parts. But it's always more than one in four, no matter what state you're looking at. So for everyone listening to this podcast, 25% of the adults around them aren't getting enough sleep, right? meaning at least that many people coming into your clinic aren't getting enough sleep. They also have some good content on potential interventions or advice patient directed material that providers could then provide to their patients uh, outside of the cdc the national sleep foundation also has some good content if you are having trouble tracking the individual sleep there's an easy sleep log that you can download from there that the, they give away right to track things like alcohol caffeine intake time in bed, time out of bed, uh, subjective quality of sleep. If your patient doesn't uh, want to do something like the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, or maybe you, uh, they're having issues with remembering back what what was the their sleep like over the past few weeks or the past month, then being more proactive and tracking it real time or as soon as they wake up every day, what was that like? Uh, that can be a little bit more reliable if we're we're concerned about the reliability of the information we're given. There's also textbooks out there. So, you know, we've kind of gone from things that are publicly available down to things that are going to cost you money. Uh, the, I know that there's a sleep and health book, uh, textbook from Elsevier that's available. I think the author is Grander that is good quality, has a lot of information about how sleep affects overall health. So not just the musculoskeletal system. So more of a broad picture. Um, and then there are also courses available that uh, kind of go on at different places. Obviously, it's not really in the PT community a ton, but you could potentially go and take a course on cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, even though you're not a psychologist. I know there are some PTs that have done that, and it's great information, give you uh, very applicable information about how to utilize these interventions in the clinic. Well, Dr. Keller, that was a great response. Uh, I hope people look out for those resources and improve their clinical game when it comes to finding and addressing sleep hygiene problems. Uh, as one last and final question, if any of our listeners want to get a hold of you and ask a question, is there a way that they can find you maybe by email or some other method? My email is taylor081, T-A-Y-L-O-R-081, at gannon.edu, G-A-N-N-O-N. And individuals could also reach me on Twitter. So my handle is at Ken Taylor DPT. 
Excellent. I will link to those in the show notes. And uh, thank you, sir, for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's fun. This has been a production of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. You can learn more about the Academy by visiting our website at aaompt.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for our acronym, AAOMPT. 